So um, I want to share a personal story with you guys, but before I do, I have to give you a word of caveat. Our ministry uh, goes all over the world teaching relational principles in Christian churches of every imaginable flavor and denomination. Um, We're a multi-denominational ministry. My uh, my board chairman is actually uh, um, the um, chancellor for the Diocese of West Texas Episcopal Church. And so uh, we're, we're, I'm in lots of different kinds of churches. And so I'm, I want to I assure you of that before I share this personal story. So all of that said, uh, for several years, my father was, for lack of a better term, and some of you may be former Baptists and you'll get this, but he was kind of the, uh, the Baptist version of the bishop for San Antonio. He was the executive director for the San Antonio Baptist Association for a number of years. And what that meant, and it's true for, your, for, for Bishop's kids as well, uh, what that meant is that he was kind of at all the churches, and that meant I was kind of at all the churches too. But when it came to being in a youth group, I wanted to pick one that I could be in. And so the one I chose in 1972 and 73 and 74 was Northridge Park Baptist Church. And so the reason I have to share that with you is because the last time I was in this room, I was sleeping overnight and I'm just feeling very mischievous this morning. I can't walk in this building, Matt, without feeling all those, uh, what can we get into now kind of feelings. I mean, I was all of 12 and 13 and 14 years old. So I love being back in here. By the way, love what you've done with it. It's a pretty different, uh, it's a pretty different feel uh, than it was way back then. But uh, no, I'm just, I'm really, really excited to get to be here with you guys. I've known Matt for several years now and uh, have loved walking along with him and him with me. And uh, it's just been, a, it's just been a, a fun friendship. And so thanks for, uh, for coming and giving me some time on your Saturday mornings. So here's what we're going to do. Um, for the last 20 years of my life, most of my time has been spent talking with God's people about what God's Word says about our relationships with one another. And that manifests itself as a ministry in a lot of different ways. Some of my ministry is, is aimed at reconciliation, counseling. Some of it is aimed at actual mediations and interventions with congregations. Uh, a lot of it, though, is aimed at just this kind of a thing, just kind of teaching and training and equipping. So what I want to do with you this morning, the vision that I want to cast for you this morning is a vision that says that, that Scripture, from beginning to end, the story as we have it of God in the Scripture, really does build a construct with regard to our community with one another. About, it really does build a picture, a pretty clear picture of what, what God expects of a local community of believers who gather together uh, what he expects that to look like. And there, there's a lot we'll be referencing. And, and, but what I want to do is I'm just going to take the time. To, and by the way, this probably feels like uh, an interminable amount of time for you. For me, and knowing what I'm trying to do with you guys, it's not nearly enough time to, to really paint a picture of what this design looks like. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the big pieces of it. I'm going to give you uh, kind of an overarching view from 30,000 feet so that you can at least get, begin to get a picture of the scale of it, of the building, and and of of the the function of the building. But if you really want to understand how this works, it's going to take a lot more than what we do today. It's going to take a deeper dive into a lot of the 
the things that we're going to be talking about. And, and what I'm going to focus on today is what we call in our ministry our five principles of unity. And, and what they are is they are um, in that structure that we're talking about. They are the load-bearing walls. Uh, they are the columns across which all of, all of this is draped. And so uh, these are five principles that emanate right out of Scripture. And they really do point to the kind of structure that Jesus has in mind when he talks about his ecclesia. And I think, um, I believe that Jesus had a way of communicating that was always powerful and always uh, spirit-filled, always amazing. But I believe that when Jesus talked about these things that we're about to talk about, I believe he had a flash in his eye because he's talking about his bride. He's talking about the same, talking about it in the same way that we would talk about our fiancé. I, I believe his expression would have changed when he began talking about these things. We see it most clearly in Matthew chapter 18, the entire chapter. Jesus is talking about his ecclesia and what it's going to look like. And so the kinds of things that we're going to be talking about this morning are central. They really are central to our life together as God's people. And they're also very powerful because even in, that, in Matthew chapter 18, even when he is painting a picture for his disciples of what his ecclesia is going to look like, there's a, there's a climax in that lesson as he's teaching it. There's a climax in it where he says, and, and where two or three of those people living in those kinds of relationships when two or three of them get together and ask for anything in my name, it will be done for them, so that whatever is bound on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. My point here is this. In Jesus' mind and heart, when he thought about us, when he thought about the church, the age of the church that he was about to begin, in his mind, a community of believers would represent God's supernatural authority on this earth. They would be filled with power and with charisma and with just this attractiveness. They wouldn't have to, 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 to talk, have seminars on how to market their church. Everyone in town would, will want to be a part of it because it is so filled with the Spirit of God. Now, we've lost, let's be honest, we've lost a lot of that in the church, at least in the Western culture. You can find those churches, by the way, in other parts of the world. But I, I, I will tell you, I, th I feel like, and my fear is, we've lost a lot of that in the Western culture because we've gotten so good at doing it ourselves. We've gotten so good at doing church without God that we do church an awful lot without God. And, and we don't necessarily rely on the things that we're going to be talking about uh, here today in terms of our relationships with one another because we're pretty good at building huge churches, organizations, with or without him. And that's, uh, that's another lecture, that's another seminar, but the, the, the point is we've had 200 years, over 200 years in our country of being completely free, hands-free, to do it however we want to do it, with a government that says we don't, we're not going to interfere with the church. And so we've been free to do it, free of any kind of persecution, free of anything, and I think we've gotten complacent in how we do it. And I think we've lost sight of how much we need God and how much we need to understand and implement the principles that we're going to be talking about here today. 
Uh, I'm actually grateful. I was having a conversation with Martha earlier this morning. I, I'm actually grateful that we seem to be moving in our culture towards, towards a time when there's not really going to be much social benefit anymore to being in the church. That's how it's been for the last 50 years, 100 years in this country. Our churches were filled with people because there was a social benefit to being there, because my business would thrive if I were there, because I was a better politician. People would vote for me if I'm in the church. Those days are leaving us, and to some, that feels real scary. To me, I am thrilled. I'm excited about that, because over the course of Christianity, whenever there's been persecution in the church, it has thrived. The kingdom of God has thrived and grown. So I'm looking forward to that. It may not happen in my lifetime in our culture. It may be my kid's lifetime. But I'm looking forward to that social benefit of being in the church leaving so that, so that we really are left just with God and God alone. We have to depend on him and on the structure that we're about to look at in order to, to survive. Not necessarily to thrive in business, but to survive in this world, and I'm looking forward to that. So with that idea in mind, kind of that dark, deep, uh, that dim picture of what, where we're headed, uh, I, I, I just I want to emphasize, I can't emphasize it enough, that when, when, when the Spirit of God talks to us about unity, when the God's Word speaks to us about oneness and what it means to be in true, healthy, Christ-centered relationships with one another, it's a big deal. And, and if all I do, if all that happens as a result of y'all being here today with me is I move the needle just a little bit in your heart and your mind in the sense that it's a bigger deal than you knew, then I will count today as a success. Now, what else God decides to do with this day in your heart and in your mind, that's up to him, and I will, I will rejoice in that. But my job is to move the needle just a little bit. My job is to help you leave here today realizing it's a bigger deal than I, than I thought. Uh, and so that's because that's what God's Word does for us. So make sure you've got a listening guide in front of you. There are these orange booklets in front of you. There's some bl blanks to be filled in as we go. It'll be encouraging to you to see us moving forward and actually making progress. Some of you are list makers. Some of you are people who check off the days on your calendar every day. Come on, admit it. You're going to love having a listening guide because you're going to see us making progress, and that'll be a good thing. It also kind of keeps me on track, too, and it keeps the stories, the stray stories, to a, to a minimal so that I can make sure I'm, I'm keeping us on schedule. So what we're going to do, what we're going to start with in your listening guide is the first page in your listening guide uh, called Unity Defined. And this is really just... Uh, so that we can get on the same page when we use that word unity because I believe that the word unity is being misused in an awful lot of settings. And so I'm just going to give you some observations that come right from Scripture about the word unity and, and we'll do that. And then, but, but don't get stressed if I'm moving too quickly through this part because we're going to come back, we're going to circle back to almost all of these observations in the material to follow. But I just want to kind of get us all on the same page, a working definition, so to speak, for unity moving forward. So first of all, filling in the blanks. Unity is not about agreeing all the time. There's nothing about the New Testament church that calls us to have to agree with each other about everything. And in fact, you don't have to read far in Paul's letters to each of those early churches to realize there was always a ton of disagreement in the New Testament church. And they found lots and lots of things to disagree about. And even from one to the next, they were very different churches. The church in Corinth was nothing like 
the church in, in Galatia. Uh, the, or the, the, the church in, in Rome was very, very different from Ephesus in a lot of ways. They, all, they found whole different things to fight over. They found lots of things to disagree about. But the point is, there's, Paul doesn't say to them, you've got to agree with each other about everything. In fact, in fact, unity has more to do with learning to disagree with one another without being disagreeable. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about how to disagree with one another in a loving and gentle way. That's, that's what unity calls us to, but it is not... But, and can I just say this? And again, I'm, I'm already straying. Sorry. I can't help it. I've been in some churches where everyone agrees with everyone about everything. And can I just tell you, it is a, it's a creepy place to be. <laughs> it scares me. That scares me. Because that screams of some kind of spiritual abuse. That screams of an environment where the people aren't allowed to think at all. They're just, they're just doing what they're told to do and being what they're told to be. And that, that's not the New Testament church. That's not the New Testament church. The New Testament church was filled with people who disagreed with one another about a lot of things. And so we learned that. Uh, let's keep moving forward, though. Unity comes from knowing that we all recognize the same head of the church, Jesus Christ. In some of my churches that I get into, this is where I get myself into trouble when I dare to start saying that the, the pastor is not the head of the church or that the um, deacons or the elders are not the head of the church or that uh, the family who's been there the longest is not the head of the church or the family who gives the most money is not the head of the church or the family who had the church library named after their great-great-great-grandfather is not the head of the church. Uh, the, the, the point, though, is this, and Scripture can't be clearer about this. Jesus is the head of his church. And when we begin to act in the church and make decisions in the church as if we believe that Jesus is the head of his church, then we come a lot closer to the kind of unity that God calls us to. It's when we begin acting as if I'm the head of the church or you're the head of the church or they are the head of the church that we get ourselves in trouble. So we've got to be careful about that. Now, having said that, I'm a big believer in pastoral authority. I think there's a, such a thing as pastoral authority, but pastoral authority uh, has more to do with a vision, an ability to see what God is doing across the landscape of a congregation than it, does, uh, than it has to do with some kind of positional authority that means you have to do everything I say. Uh, I tell pastors this all the time. You are leading a volunteer army. If you turn around and nobody's following you, you're just taking a walk. You're not really leading. I mean, people are going to follow leaders in the church because they want to follow those leaders and for no other reason. It's, it's not about position. It's not about special parking places. It's not about any of that. It really is about Jesus manifesting himself in the church. We'll come back to this when we talk, particularly when we start talking about how building consensus in the church works, but this is an important part of understanding unity. Next, unity. Unity come, uh, is about our relationship with Christ through both personal prayer and interpersonal relationships within the body of believers. There's two aspects of it, personal prayer and interpersonal relationships. Good, you've got a cross. Uh, nine out of ten churches I'm in that I'm doing this in, I can turn and I can refer to this um, unbelievable symbol behind me 
as uh, the church because it's a perfect symbol. It's got two pieces to it. It's got the vertical piece and it's got the horizontal piece. And so what I would do, and I'm not going to actually draw on your cross, but, it, it, but if I were, I would, I would write on the, on the vertical piece that's going across, I would write interpersonal relationships, and on the horizontal piece, I would write personal prayer time. All of that is just to say this, your relationship, your walk with Christ, your walk with God, your journey, consists of two elements. There is a personal prayer time, which is just me and God alone in my prayer closet with his word, allowing the Holy Spirit to take the word and speak to me as only he can. Personal prayer time. Uh, in, in the culture I grew up in, uh, in the, in the <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say this, in the old Bill Gothard discipleship training course that I grew up with as a teenager, we called it our quiet time. You can call it your personal prayer time, you can call it your quiet time, you can call it, I don't care what you call it. I don't think God cares what you call it either. The point is, we need a time on a regular basis. There should be a spiritual discipline in our lives on a regular basis where we are alone with God and we are allowing his word to speak to us and to shape how we think and how we see the world around us. And that's that, that's that vertical piece of the cross. But what I want you to understand is, and what I particularly want my evangelical brothers and sisters to understand is, that's only half of your relationship with Christ. That's only one piece of the cross. The other half of your relationship with Christ is your relationship with the Christ who lives in the person sitting next to you right now. That part of Christ who lives in that person, in these people. Your connection, your relationship with the Spirit of God living in the people with whom you've been called to worship. And that's the other half your relationship. Now, I'm going to stop and camp on this for just a second, and we're going to get into it in a big way when we get into the first principle of unity, but I, I just want you to, to stop and ponder what that means. This, if, as you begin to understand this concept of the Spirit of Christ living in my brother, it changes a lot of things about how we do church. In fact, if you really allow it to, it'll change everything about how you do church. Because all of a sudden, that person within your body of believers that God has called you to walk with, who you disagree strongly with, and you don't even like being around, and they freak you out, and they scare you a little bit, and you really don't want a relationship with them, and when you see them come in, you try to find a different way out of the room, that doesn't really work anymore because God has put you together in a body of believers. His spirit lives in both of you and that spirit should be resonating between the two of you. And so it's not really an option all of a sudden to just refuse to have any relationship at all with someone that God has placed in your life, a Christian, a believer who God has placed in your life for a purpose. And so We'll get into this, but I, I just want you to recognize that your relationship, your walk with Christ depends upon being in community with other believers. It depends on that. And whoever the spiritual giants are in your life, it was so for them as well, whether they're dead or alive. It may have been your, you know, your first grade Sunday school teacher was a spiritual giant in your life, or maybe it's a, a long since dead 
Christian writer. Maybe it's a C.S. Lewis or an Oswald Chambers or a Mother Teresa. or who know, I don't know who the spiritual giants are in your life. But I'm gonna, just going to tell you, they didn't become spiritual giants all by themselves. They became spiritual giants because they lived in community with other believers who were pouring into them. All of them, without question, became that way in community with other believers. And so your relationship with Christ really does depend on both and. Both the vertical and the horizontal. Let's keep moving. Next. Yeah, I'm, I'm having to read it off the screen because I can't see because my glasses are in my pocket. My wife says, don't put your glasses on when you talk. And I don't know why. She thinks I don't, it makes me look old. And so... <laughs> It is about the Spirit through whom we relate to one another. It is our lavishing the fruit of that Spirit on the Christ in one another. It is our lavishing the fruit of that Spirit. And you know the fruit of the Spirit. Y'all are good church people. You learned this. Galatians chapter 5. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's not an exhaustive list. That's a partial list. There's a lot of other places in Paul's writings where we get a lot more fruit of the Spirit. The bottom line is, the Spirit of God living in me produces fruit. Fruit that cannot be duplicated by human means. In other words, I can go to all the Dale Carnegie courses in the world about how to win friends and influence people. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is stuff that the Spirit of God produces in me that can't be explained any other way. And the question then becomes, what do I do with that fruit when it is produced in me? And the answer is, I lavish it on the Christ in those around me. It's almost as an act of worship. Careful how you hear that. I'm not saying we worship one another. I am saying we worship Christ in one another. And so it, it is lavishing the fruit of that Spirit on the Christ in one another. That, that, that's the mechanism for our life together. I, th I think of the fruit of the Spirit as the lubricant that allows life together to even happen. Because let's be honest, without those fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things that the Spirit produces in us, without those, without those, we'd kill each other. We couldn't bear it. Gandhi would be absolutely right. Your Jesus I love, his followers I'm not so sure about. Um, without the fruit of the Spirit in us, that's the lubricant that makes this whole mechanism work. This machine that Jesus called his ecclesia. It's what makes it work. And so it is this Christ living in me that does that. Next, filling in blanks. Concerning doctrine. Okay, and this is where it gets a little scary. Concerning doctrine, it means sharing common convictions about the most basic doctrines and, at the same time, creating an atmosphere for growth together despite our disagreements about the less basic doctrines. Those are your blanks to fill in. Most basic doctrines, less basic doctrines. I'm not a theologian. I've never been to seminary. But I've been reading and even teaching. I've been reading this book for well over 50 years now, and I've been teaching it for about 45 of those years. I'm absolutely certain I've read through it dozens of times, cover to cover. Uh, I know it 
pretty well, but I've never been to seminary, and I don't speak Greek, and I don't speak Hebrew. And so, that's my caveat. You don't have to hear this as a seminarian talking to you, but here's the thing. What theologians have done for us, and we need them in our lives, what theologians have done for us is they've they've taken everything that, that God's Word has to say, and they've subdivided it into what they call doctrines, right? So there is a doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. There's a doctrine of Christ, Christology. There's a doctrine of demons, demonology. There's a doctrine of the Trinity. There's a doctrine of baptism. There's a doctrine of, for everything. They've named them. The doctrine of angels. Doctrine of God the Father. Uh, so the, the, all of these doctrines have been labeled for us. And, and it's, just a, it's just a shorthand way of describing a more complicated concept is what they are what, what, when we talk about doctrines. Well, what I want you to hear about doctrines is that all of those doctrines, all of those doctrines can be rightly divided into two categories. There's a category of doctrine over which you and I can disagree and still worship together and call each other brother and sister in Christ. And then there is a category of doctrine about which you and I really can't compromise or disagree if we're going to call ourselves Christ followers. Now, just saying those words is making some of you nervous. Just the fact that I've said that, because you're, now you're wondering, where is he about to go with this? What, where is he about to tell us that is not compromisable? And the good news is, I'm not going to answer that question for you. The better news is, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. There are some things that I know are pretty much indisputable, not compromisable. Jesus really is the Son of God. He really did die a physical death, and he really was raised from the dead. All that happened. Everything that you and I are a part of depends on the reality of that event. And so that's not compromisable. But there are other doctrines in here that are, that you and I can disagree on. Maybe, uh, i got to stop using this illustration because we have two generations of adults now in the church who don't remember this, but it's such a great illustration, I can't, stop, I can't not use it. You remember, y'all remember the Left Behind series of books, Tim LaHaye? Okay, I read them all. I was fascinated by them. I don't agree with them. I don't agree with Tim LaHaye on the way, everything he, the way he says everything's going to happen in end times. I have a different take on it. But I loved it. I was drawn to it. But the fact that I can disagree with him and still call Tim LaHaye my Christian brother says something. It says that in matters of eschatology, in matters of end time predictions, we can disagree with one another and still call ourselves Christians. That's a fair, that's a fair statement. But can I tell you it wasn't always so? In some churches, it wasn't always like that. As little as 50 years ago, there were plenty of churches in my home denomination, in the Baptist world, as little as 50 years ago, there were plenty of churches that were splitting over that. Are you an amillennialist or premillennialist or dispensationalist? My dad always says, I'm a panmillennialist. I think it's all going to pan out in the end. And then I, my, my word is always, well, I'm pro-millennial. I've got two of them living in my house, and I think they're fine. I'm, 
I, I don't, you know, I, the, the point is there are some things we can disagree on in Scripture and still be fine. We're, we're okay. We can disagree about this, but there are some things we can't. And our life together as a community of believers is spent trying to discern that difference. Whenever I find myself in a theological argument or even a debate with a brother or sister, the first thing I need to know before we go further in this debate, I need to understand what's at stake here. Are you going to decide I'm not saved if I end up disagreeing with you on that? Because if that's what's at stake, that changes my approach to this debate. And so these are important discernment type questions for us when we start fighting over doctrine. It's important for us. And we depend, this is where we depend largely on pastoral authority and on the theologians among us to help us. But I'm just going to tell you that that list, I I have a theory, and again, I'm not a theologian, but I have a theory. I think that that list of things over which we must agree, we cannot disagree, I think it's shorter than we think. I think it's shorter than we think it is. And the reason I believe that is because as it turns out, there was a guy hanging on the cross next to Jesus who was not a theologian and never been to seminary. And if you asked him, are you a premillennialist or a postmillennialist, he wouldn't have had a clue what you were talking about. If you asked him, do you believe in the, etern- the, the eternal security of your salvation, he wouldn't have had a clue what you were talking about. There are a lot of doctrinal questions you could have asked him and he would not have known the answer to. But Jesus said to him, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He got in. With whatever little he knew, he got in. And so I'm just saying that list of doctrines over things that we cannot disagree about, I think when we get to heaven, I think we're in for a surprise. I think all of us are going to look around, and I think we're going to be surprised to see some folks there that we did not think would be there. And I think we're going to look around and we're going to be surprised to not see some folks there that we assumed would be there. And I think a lot of people in heaven are going to be surprised to look around and see us there. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting experience for all of us. And, I, and, and that's the only place we'll know for sure, for sure, for sure what was worth fighting over and what was not worth fighting over. But we're going to learn there. So I think we at least need to be asking the question, is this essential or not? Is this worth dividing over or not? Let's keep going, filling in blanks. Unity is a framework in which to deal with whatever conflict arises. Conflict is almost never good or bad in itself. What makes it good or bad is how we respond to it. How we respond to the conflict is what makes it a good or a bad thing. When I'm working with conflicted congregations, and I'll work with two or three of those in a year, um, it takes time, it takes weeks or months of working through issues sometimes when it's an entire congregation involved. And at some point in the process, the first people that will come up to me and, and want out are usually the parents of teenagers. And they'll come up, and I already, I've, I've memorized the talk. I know what they're going to say. They're going to come up and they're going to say, hey, here's the deal, Blake. We love this church. It's been good to us, but we don't want our kids exposed to this. We don't want them to see the, 
the fighting that's going on in these meetings. And we just rather, you know, there's a pretty good youth program across the street, and we're going to ride it out over there. And we're going we're to go over there and ride it out, and we'll come back when everything's calm and everything's better, but we just don't want our kids to see this. And I know what they're asking. What they're really asking is they're asking me to bless this. They're asking me to say, that's good parenting. That's a good idea. That's exactly what you should do. But I won't do that because I think it's horrible parenting. I don't think it's good at all. Because, because God doesn't want a bunch of followers who run every time there's a conflict. And, and I, what I do share with them, particularly if I feel like I've got a good enough relationship with them and they can handle this, what I share with them is, can I tell you something about your teenager that you need to be in touch with? You are five, maybe ten years away, probably less than that, before that kid gets married. Your teenager is going to marry someone. And within the first year, probably within the first six months of that marriage, that child of yours is going to be on the phone with you or worse, standing on your doorstep saying, Mom, Dad, we had a huge fight and I've left. And I want a divorce. And when that happens, don't come to me as your lawyer. To handle that because I didn't teach them that you taught them that when you ran from the conflict see what the apostle Paul understood in Philippians chapter 4 when about church fights he said to that church and he was talking specifically about a fight going on in that church between two women Euodia and Syntyche and when he was talking about church fights the apostle Paul said you should rejoice in the Lord always again I say You should rejoice. So what is it that the Apostle Paul understood about church fights that you and I tend to overlook? It is this, that with every conflict that God permits to visit a congregation, it presents a new opportunity to glorify God, a new opportunity to find ourselves in a place we never would have gotten without that conflict. It's such a new opportunity. Paul says, this is awesome. This is fantastic that you have this going on. What, see, what, what, the, what the community around us, and, and we have become, we, we live in a glass bowl these days in the church. The, the world is watching us. They're watching us bicker and fight and call each other names and accuse each other of not being saved and telling each other you're in the wrong kind of Christianity. They're, they're watching all of this happen on on Twitter and on Facebook and, and in our communities. And when we have conflict, they watch to see how we handle it. And if the way we handle it looks exactly like the way they handle it, there is, well, they got nothing for me. They do it the same way we do it. Fight or flight. It's not about fighting and it's not about fleeing. It is about putting our arms around each other and walking, wading through that conflict together and allowing the Lord to be glorified. That's what it looks like. That's what it should look like. It's not an easy thing. It requires a ton of discernment. It requires a ton of connecting with the Christ in one another in order to do it. But how we respond to the conflict is what will make it either a good thing for this church or a very bad thing for this church. We get to decide. We don't get to decide whether there's going to be conflict. That's like standing on the seashore and deciding whether there's going to be waves. But we do get to decide how we respond 
when it happens. When this conflict that God saw coming a thousand years ago, and then a hundred years ago, and then ten years ago, and then last year, and he saw it coming yesterday before that wave hit, and he lifted his hand and he allowed it to happen, it is up to us to figure out how we will respond to it. So when, when the Bible talks about unity, there's no assumption here that there won't be conflict. That happens to me when I go to, uh, when I go to, uh, to meetings of pastors, conventions and retreats and things like that. And, and I'm there. I am like, I tell you, I'm like the angel of death. No one wants to be seen. No pastor ever wants to be seen talking to Blake Coffee. <laughs> it's like, what will my friends think if they see me talking to Blake? And, 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 and when they do, you know, when I do catch them off guard and they can't walk away... Uh, and I ask them, how are things going? They're like, oh, we're, everything's good in our church. We don't have any conflict at all in our church. And, and when a pastor tells me we have no conflict at all in my church, Matt, I know he's either lying to me or he's blissfully ignorant. Because if there are people in your church, there will be conflict. Of course there's going to be conflict. And so how we respond to it is what makes it a good thing or a bad thing. Okay, next. Unity requires two things. It requires both character and action. It is a function of who we are and who we're becoming in Christ, but it is also a function of our conduct, of the things that we are doing, of the way we act, of our behaviors. It's both. It's both. It's not only who we are, but it's about, it's about what we're doing. And these principles of unity that we're about to get into touch both of those things. So turn the page and let's jump into the first principle of unity, which is the most important by far. It's the theology of unity. It's where unity really comes from. It's what we call the principle of the Spirit. 